You're listening to the Miles Not Included podcast, the show devoted to making you a better runner and celebrating your running achievements. Run with us as we talk training, racing, and everything in between. Now, here are your hosts, Brian and Joe. Welcome to episode 19. Hey, Joe, what'd you think of that new intro we got? Things pretty tight. I like it. A little bit of change freshens everything up, and it's getting nice outside, so it was about the right time. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So what are we talking about this week? Well, for episode 19, we're bringing on a gentleman who's the lead buyer of footwear for a running warehouse. Good stuff, man. uh, For sure. So we're going to talk shoes and get the answer to our burning question, is it Hoka or Hookah? (laughs) What is the name of that shoe? And the entire episode will be him answering that question, and then we cut it off. Exactly. But for anyone who doesn't know, Running Warehouse is pretty awesome. We both buy a lot of our footwear from there, so it's a great place to check out. Absolutely. So, Joe, are you running again? Well, I was, Brian, but the uh, week saw many changes. I started out very nicely, got out there and did like a 10, 15-minute run, came back another 10, 15-minute run, was feeling very optimistic, took a day off just as a precaution, and then I made a fatal error. I made a trip to Ikea. Ooh. Yes. I should have nothing to do with that place, especially when it comes to lifting any of the boxes that they pack up. I don't know how they get so much into such a tight space, but... Ice cube tray? <laughs> yeah, no, not quite. It was like uh, extra large ice cream. No, but it... Uh, so yeah, I, I loaded it up in the car, felt, felt fine, drove home with it, measured the space, determined it wouldn't fit, promptly drove back to Ikea unloaded and i think that's where the problem was it was shortly after that that i felt the back just tighten up and i knew it wasn't going to be good so is this a different pain than you've been experiencing it is it's uh i mean it was more like the uh, pain i had last year which was just bad back pain (laughs) uh this one was mostly in the left i think as i unloaded i was just off balance and uh just pulled something a little bit there, strained something. So I uh, slept on it, did the icing and all that stuff. Woke up Saturday, still feeling it good. So I went back to the doctor. I'm getting great use of these doctors here and got some, uh, got some meds. So I feel much, much better here a couple of days later and optimistic I can get back to running. So my plans to return, probably not tomorrow, give it another day or two and then start back up with some 10, 15 minute runs. Just make sure the body's feeling okay and everything's going well and then I'll slowly increase it. But I was doing all the PT stuff, uh, feeling good about that and pouring a lot of time into the exercises. So the back threw a little, little wrench into the plan. So when you get back to running those 10, 15 minute runs, will you be doing them indoors, outdoors? So I like to do them outdoors and part of what I've started to try to incorporate is uh, kind of a ballistic warm up. Uh, I got a an active warm up from my physical therapist. So just a couple of exercise exercises to get those muscles ready for the actual running. I'd always I tried to typically walk a little bit 
except when I was late, in which case I would just jump out of the car and go. Uh, but yeah, my preference has always been to you know get a minute or two walk just to get some blood flowing. But now I'm inserting those exercises, which only take two, three, four minutes. Um, but I figured, hey, you know what? Can't hurt. So trying to do that active warm up, then do the run just straight through and then do a little bit of stretching afterwards, foam rolling, all that. Good. Well, you know, hopefully you'll get on top of it and you'll be back out there soon. I hope so. I'm I'm optimistic. I think this was just a temporary bump, but I got to be more careful, I guess, when when shopping, <laughs> when shopping injuries shut down your running. So I, well, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, how, how's it going over there? I know you've been battling some stuff on your side too. Yeah. So when we talked last... Uh, I believe I still wasn't running, and I was planning on going out for a run the next morning. Uh, this was largely due to the pain in the in the side of my knee. So on Monday of last week, I did go out for a run, just a short little, about 5K, real easy. And everything felt okay, so that was good. So I got back out there Tuesday, went a little further, back out there Wednesday, short again. Managed to also get out there Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. For the listeners, we're recording this now on Monday evening. Um, and I actually took today off. So I did do seven consecutive runs and then took today off as my rest day. I had no real issues. Yesterday, I was actually due to rain and some just timing around Mother's Day. I was forced to run on a treadmill and I did feel a bit of pain on the side of my knee. So I'm wondering if that is what caused my issue two weeks ago because I did do a treadmill run right before I started experiencing the pain. So I don't know if it's an issue with the shoes I have because these shoes have about 400 miles on them right now. So they're on the verge of being um, swapped out. Or if it's just something in my striking pattern when I'm on the treadmill where I'm doing something different and I'm trying to consciously run smoothly but it doesn't always work. You know, sometimes you think you're running smooth and you really aren't. So it may have something to do with that. So I guess that's just one more excuse for me to go out and run on the trails around here. So, Yeah, well, after all these torrential rains, hopefully the, the trails dry out and are runnable because that certainly would be nice to get on that soft surface, especially when your knee's hurting like that. Yep, and I'm feeling good, so hope we'll see where it goes from here, and hopefully it'll be onwards and upwards. So at this point, still planning on July 4th run? Yeah, I'd love to just get out there. And even if it's not a, an attempted PR, just to get out there and you know, be part of something, you know, get the, the fire burning. That's nice. Well, I heard a rumor that the uh, 5K through our work may be coming up at the end of the month. You've got any interest in that? No, no. not at all. I've, I had a not-so-great experience there before, and... Though we have a, a nice walking path, I don't think it's the most conducive path to running. So, Yeah, it's a little little tight with some of those turns, and some of those rocks are pretty good size. Well, I just hope to be up to a 5K by, by the end of the month. That would be a, that'd be a win in my book. <laughs> One step at a time. Oh, absolutely. After what I've gone through for the last eight weeks or whatever it's, it's going on now, I'm, I'll take uh, I need any win I can get. <laughs> So I guess a bit of housekeeping here. Um, as we mentioned in previous weeks, be sure to go out to iTunes. We'd really appreciate a five-star review. 
Uh, if you have a chance, you know, write something up out there would be great. It definitely helps the show and helps get us some new listeners, and we'd appreciate that. So, anything else from you, Joe? No, let's talk shoes. All right, we'll be back after this. Our guest today started running in middle school. He then ran cross-country and track in high school and went on to running college. After college, he shifted gears and started running ultras. To date, he's completed more than 60 ultras, including five sub-20-hour finishes at the Western States 100. As impressive as all that is, even more impressive is the fact he owns 60 pairs of shoes. Let's welcome the head buyer of footwear from Running Warehouse, Eric Duby. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. So I got to I got to start with the uh, obvious question: How do you become the head buyer of footwear for Running Warehouse? Well, you start off eight years ago uh, packing boxes and working in the warehouse, and you love running. And as the company grows, you're able to grow with it. Um, I started buying gels and watches and socks about six years ago, and then started with some of the smaller footwear brands probably about four years ago, and then about. Two, three years ago, started buying some of the uh, bigger brands and then eventually took over. Uh, I have nine of the bigger brands. Um, as the person who's doing that job, just kind of moved on to some other duties within the uh, company. That's awesome. And I know you probably can't give away uh, trade secrets there, but just in general, I mean, what kind, of, what kind of volume are you doing there? I mean, you guys must go through a tremendous amount of running shoes in a, in a given month. Yeah, um, it's a lot. <laughs> We, we do pretty good and we're growing. We're having a, a pretty good year this year and selling more than last year. And, you know, we're looking at some new brands, bringing them on board and uh, both footwear and apparel and, and nutrition and, and just really growing as a company and providing the stuff that uh, really the stuff I want to use to the rest of the consumers out there. That's cool. And, and judging by your, your closet, you're getting to, uh, to try a lot of it out on the trails and the road. It's mandatory. I got to know what I'm buying. Gosh, so that that's must be nice to have work time up. Oh, Got to go run. Yeah, I put in a pretty good day. I, I get here at seven, leave at five, and that gives me about an hour and a half uh, lunch to to run pretty much every day. So uh, I'm able to uh, take a new pair of shoes out, hit the trails. It's just a couple miles from our door, and and see what kind of kind of footwear there that's out there. That's some of the new stuff. That's cool. So let's let's talk uh, trends for uh, for a while here. So one of the big things. Uh, that everybody is seeing out there is this maximum cushioning trend. Can you talk about where that started and where that's at right now? Yeah, sure. Um, so the maximalist trend started about three, four years ago with the introduction of Hoka. And at first they were definitely the uh, opposite side of the coin to the minimalist trend. And uh, they came out right around the peak of the minimalist trend. And I think they were the answer to those who thought that uh, shoes were getting too light, too low to ground, and running on pretty much your bare foot was uh, not the experience that people wanted. So um, Hoka is definitely the first, I would say, to kind of be in that trend, and they've kind of carried that trend over the last few years. And it's just within the last 6 to 12 months that we're starting to see some other companies come out with product that is... Uh, in that same maximalist uh, arena. Um, to a certain extent, I still feel like it's a Hoka trend and not a maximalist trend. There's been some other introductions from some other companies that have done okay but haven't had the same 
power as uh, as what Hoka has done. I think right now people are still kind of attracted to that brand. So what are you seeing from the customer standpoint? Are you, is it being well received? The maximalist trend? Yes. Uh, at our store, yes. Um, and we have a pretty good cross uh, section of the country. I mean, we service... Since we're primarily an online dealer, we service everybody in the U.S., and we're seeing people from all across the U.S. Um, check out the shoes. Um, and and like I said, it's really kind of a Hoka trend, and we're seeing um, the new Hoka model, whatever one they're introducing, kind of uh, lead the pack right now. Um, you know, From our perspective, with the volume that we're doing with Hoka, people are really jumping on board and liking what they're getting. What runners attracted to this shoe? Is there a particular particular archetype, or is it roads, trails? It's really a good cross section of people: um, front of the pack, back of the pack, road, and trails. Um, I do a lot of ultras, and over the last couple of years, I well, I always am checking footwear. But over the last couple of years, I am seeing a huge amount of ultra runners in a lot of competitive fields uh, wearing Hoka in a variety of styles. Um, I, I don't do as many road races, but I definitely check them out. I'm seeing Hoka pop up more on road races, too. I think Hoka really started as a trail brand, but starting to cross into roads more and more. So besides cushioning, what else are runners looking for out of a shoe? You know, I think it still holds true that runners are looking for comfort. They're looking for that initial step in feel and saying, that's a shoe I can head out the door in. You know, I always tell customers, if you step into a shoe and something's bothering you, then don't get it because it's not something that you're going to break in and it's going to feel better after a while. It's probably going to irritate you more and more. So I think, number one, that shoe has to be comfortable when you initially step into it. Any downsides that you're seeing runners report with uh, maximum cushioning? Uh, you know, it's not for everybody. It's just like the minimalist trend. It's not for everybody. Um, you're on a higher platform. So it might change your stride mechanics a little bit for some people. And not everybody likes the experience. Um, I don't particularly like a softer shoe. So some of the Hoka models that have come out haven't been to my liking. But there's the uh, new Challenger ATR that just came out recently. That works for me. Good amount of cushioning. And it's a little firmer shoe. So it fits kind of my, uh, my type of shoe that I really like. Um, yeah. And you, you touch on it. Let's, let's go back to the the minimalist craze. So born to run, I think most, most runners have read it by now. And that really sparked this, this big trend in minimalist shoes for you. How do you define minimalist? You know, there's shades of gray in, in that definition. Um, we've looked at trying to define that so that we can relay the information to our consumer if you go on our website, we actually have information on it. But we look at minimalists as having, and true minimalists, as having a very low stack height and a very low drop. So you might be looking at a zero to maybe a two, three millimeter drop from heel to forefoot. And a stack height, you know, you're, you might only be looking at 10 to 12 millimeters, if not less. So, you know, we've tried to define what that is. Um, but some people might consider minimalists to be a little bit different. You know, it's it's not a well-defined or an exactly defined measurement within the industry. And given that there's not that much to the shoe, are you seeing any major changes in, in minimalist wear? Uh, the selection has decreased. 
Has it? Wow. Okay. Very greatly. Um, I would say the peak was about two to three years ago, and you had a lot of companies putting out some really great product in that area. Um, most of the major companies tried to come out with a version of what they saw as a minimalist shoe. And uh, over the next couple of years, so from about 2012, 2013 to where we are now, uh, a lot of those companies have abandoned those models. Um, New Balance has, still has a pretty good selection. Merrill still has a pretty good selection. Uh, Nike has their free selection, which is kind of in that area. But a lot of the other companies that were producing models to meet the minimalist um, consumer have pulled back from that because the volume wasn't there. Um, but there are still several niche brands that cater to those, uh, those consumers, and there are still quite a bit of product in the market, but it's much smaller than it was two years ago. Do you see that trend continuing? Are we on a downward slope, or is it, have we bottomed out? As far as minimal, minimalism, yeah. mm-hmm. I would say we're probably at a level, um, at least at least from what we carry, we're probably at a level that we can sustain now and won't see too much more shrinkage. Um, but we only have a handful of models that I would say are truly minimal shoes, where you're talking about those who are kind of all on the range of a barefoot runner who just want a little bit of protection. I think so, we've I've seen the bottom. So what's the storyline there? Are these people who are runners that wanted to try the minimalist, they try it and they go back? And if so, what are they just reverting back to what they've always run in? Yeah, I think they've reverted back to something that they want, that they always ran in or are looking for the new experience. Um, you know, trends happen and minimal minimal running was a trend and people, I think, looked at the book and thought, this is an experience I want to try. They tried the form changing that minimalists um, uh, talked about, trying to get more on your forefoot, work on your form. They tried these things, and in my opinion, and what I've seen is, really people want to go out, run, and feel good. If you're spending a lot of time trying to work into a shoe, just doing a couple miles at a time because you need to build up muscles, and you want to work into a new form, and you want to work into all these aspects that minimum minimalists kind of needed to do in order to be successful in those shoes, I think it got to a point where people were like, it's not for me. I want to experience I can just step out, go for my run, and not worry about form and, and a lot of these little things. Um, the the casual runner doesn't have a lot of time to maybe spend on this sport. They want to go out the door, get the run in, and be done with it. So they kind of backed off those minimal shoes, which don't really provide a lot of protection to the ground, especially if you're heel striking, especially if you're a heavier runner, and went back to their traditional shoes, or now they're investigating the maximal shoes. And that was that's a great point. And I think Brian and I have seen this in our running circles. I mean, the people who experiment, experiment you know, people have ridden kind of that pendulum swing from from one side to the other. So do you think it's any accident then both of these trends we're talking about really started uh, off road? Uh, there- no, I, I, I think the trail runner um, is a segment of the population that is very much growing and um they're looking for experiences out in nature. They're looking for a way to maybe to connect with the, the surroundings. And they were intrigued by the idea of here's, here's another way to run that can maybe get you a little bit more connected to what you're running on and running in. Um, yeah, I still see a lot of people out on the trails running in minimalist footwear. And I think 
a big portion of the people who are real minimalists are still running on the trails quite a bit. Um, yeah, I don't know how much guy you guys uh, ran in minimalist footwear. I did a bit just to experiment with it. And running on the roads in a thin shoe can be kind of a rough experience. Uh, it can be harder to recover from, especially if uh, you're older, you're not as flexible. I mean, a lot of these little things. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pointing at myself right now because I, I meet all of the criteria outlined there. Yeah, I, I use the Nike Free for a little bit, more as a tool, though, just to try to strengthen the foot. But, yeah, I never really had the courage to adopt it um, and bring it out onto the road. You know, you, you mentioned the word tool, and, and I think something that the industry has really taken away from the minimalist movement is – you have tools in your tool bag for a certain job. You have lightweight, low-profile shoes for some runs. You have other footwear for your daily runs. You have other footwear for longer runs. I think a minimalist shoe is a tool in your tool bag that you can use for certain times. And I use it for, um, you know, strides or um, maybe shakeout runs or or something that really works with that footwear. It's not the best for me if I'm going out and doing 20 miles over rocky terrain. So I think I think people people really looked at this movement and and they can say, you know, I don't have to run in one shoe all the time and that's going to be the only thing I do. I can have a new shoe for a different experience on a different day and uh and be happy with it. And you know, minimalist works great for some people. Some people adopted it have run with it. It's helped them with their form. It's helped them with their injuries. And that's great. It's just, it's not for everybody. Just like maximal shoes. It's not for everybody. It's worth trying because you might like it, but it's not for everybody. So one of the other, uh, I don't know if you call this a trend or maybe facets of, uh, that we're seeing out there is the zero drop concept. I guessing it's related most closely with the minimalist. Um, but it seems like it's become more pervasive. Mm-hmm. Tell us why, why this, is important and is this something that the average runner should look at? You know, it's like you said, it's another, um, I think it's another takeaway from the minimalist movement. The whole idea was zero drop or very low drop. And I think there's something to it. I think maybe running in a 10 to 12 millimeter drop shoe isn't, uh, the ideal thing. Um, and I think, I think the most important aspect of the minimalist movement that the industry has taken away from, that whole trend and, and what happened is a low drop shoe does provide some benefits for many people. Not everybody. And it might not be zero drop, but a lower drop does help a lot of people. And uh, the industry has taken that away. And some people have said zero drops the way to go. Um, I think Ultra is a great example of a company that looked at it and said, this is this is the way to do it and this is what we're going to do and have stayed true to that idea. And I think they do a wonderful idea or job of, of taking that idea with different stack heights and different types of shoes and have worked with it. I think New Balance has taken that low drop and even zero drop shoe and done some great things with their um, their uh, line of shoes, um, the minimum shoes and, and some of the resulting other models have done a good job with it. And other companies, I think, they didn't go all the way to zero drop, but a company like Saucony took their entire line that was, you know, 10 to 12 millimeter drop and said, we're going to go to four, we're going to go to eight, and that's the shoes we're going to do. Um, 
So I know you talked about zero drop in particular, but I think that low drop um, was a very important takeaway from the minimalist movement that a lot of people have kind of adopted and used in in uh, many different brands. And I think it's very successful. So another big trend we saw a couple of years back that I don't see as much anymore is Newton's. What are you seeing in that space? That's a little bit more of an alternative footwear. But again, there was a huge boom. Everyone was talking about it. And now I know they're still around. I see them from time to time, but not quite as much. So again, I can only speak from our view and and what we sell and our interactions with consumers. Our new business has increased. And that might be because... um, uh, a lot of other stores saw a decrease and maybe aren't carrying that anymore. So those consumers that are still out there are coming to us. Um, Newton provides a different way of achieving the same goal. And just like I said, minimal shoes isn't for everybody. Maximal shoes isn't for everybody. Newton shoes aren't for everybody, but it's another way to experience your run, and it works for some people. Um, I think the best thing, and I'm going to pick on Hoka, Ultra, and Newton for a second, I think the best thing these companies have done have is they've picked a way to provide a new experience for the consumer when they're running and have stuck to it and have developed it. And they found their, their niche and they found their consumer and they've stayed true to it and they've built their brand. Um, you know, there's no one size fits all. These companies are for those uh, particular consumers that enjoy and can use their product and they do a good job with it. So for Newton, we do a great job with Newton, and our business is very strong with them, and we haven't seen the decline. But I know nationwide, maybe some other stores have seen that decline um, because, you know, whatever their consumer base has done. Yeah. So we've covered a lot of the the major trends, uh, but looking at, I mean, technology is constantly moving in all aspects of our life, and um, I'm always reading, you know, about the new version of my shoe. It's got all this new technology. But what what really is happening that, from your vantage point, is exciting? Um, just from that true technology space, whether it's materials or how or how they're constructed. Um, but what's kind of new there? Um, you know, minimalist was exciting and new. Maximal shoes is exciting and new, and that's still being developed. Um, you know, as far as technologies, I think I think the uh, Boost and Adidas has, has been an interesting technology that really stands out. Um, I think it provides a different ride and a different feel for their shoes. Um, I think Nike Flyknit is still being developed, but provides a little different feel, so an upper. Um You know, it's hard. It's hard to pick one particular technology and and kind of say this is this is it. It's it's kind of like the next iteration. It's not revolution. It's evolution. Um, so to to really kind of pick up and and talk about these small little changes can be kind of hard. And and you maybe don't feel it. You can't really point to it, but it's there. So. I mean, you're talking about what's the new technology. I can't put a name on any one thing that really stands out. It's just a bunch of little changes that the companies are constantly making to their existing technology that's good. Now, I I can't talk specifics, but I know companies um, 
in the next six to 12 months have talked about some new midsoles and some new cushioning that should be exciting if it comes out the way they talk about it. Um, so just, it's kind of a stay tuned, wait and see. Um, so I think there's some cool things coming out that I don't have specifics on. Um, but there's nothing right now, I think, besides boost and besides a couple uppers. Like I think Saucony, the ISOFIT is, is a nice upper change. Uh, the, um, yeah, I mean, those are just a couple of them that stand out, but there's nothing that's revolutionary right now. If you could talk about the change, so uh, the changes as they come out here. So one of the things that I think most of our listeners can identify with is you have a shoe, you like it, fits great, you run in it for a while, you go to purchase that shoe, right, because there's some kind of magic in that shoe, and you find out, oh, there's a new model out there. Can you tell us, uh, and I don't know if all the manufacturers are the same, but what's a typical shoe cycle? Like how frequently are the colors getting refreshed? How frequently are there major updates to the shoe? Generally, a shoe is going to have a two-year life cycle for the, um, the midsole outsole. So you're going to have a shoe, and it's going to be in for two years. And then every year, the upper gets changed. So um, I'm trying to think of uh, a good shoe that just came out. So let's take a look at the, um, uh, the Saucony Triumph. I was looking at those today. So they just introduced the, uh, the new Saucony ISO Triumph. Typically you're going to see that new platform out for two years. And next year, you should get an upper change. So a two-year cycle for midsole outsole, one-year cycle for the upper. In between, you're going to have a six-month color, uh, maybe two. So every six months, you have a change there. A brand like Nike, which does such a bigger volume, you're going to usually have new colors every three months. So they can, they can put out new colors every three months, a new upper every 12 months, a new platform every two years. That's very typical, but some some go a little longer, some a little shorter. They might have a need to change the platform every year. All right, and, and this question might be a little ge- a little general, hard to answer. But one of the other things I think most runners will associate with the new shoe buying process is they go back and their shoe has gotten more expensive. Can you talk about just overall um, the trend in shoe prices? Because from my vantage point. Um, it seems like the drift continues to go up. So a lot of our other goods, you know, stay fairly flat. I mean, there's some tick up, but it seems like running shoes have have definitely ticked up more than some of the other durable goods. Yeah, and I don't have all the facts on that. Um, it's something I've looked into. Um, I think part of it is there was a period of time where running shoes really did not creep up. And I'm talking about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, your average trainer was about $100, 90 to 100 and it stayed there for quite a long time. It probably stayed there longer than um, it really should have. I think a lot of companies were absorbing the extra cost and just saying, okay. And then at some point, they started uh, creeping up 110 120 um, A lot of models right now are $120, and they look at that and say that's kind of the average point. And then you have... You have the shoes that are 150 and 200, kind of the high end, the throw all the technology in there. Here's your super plush, super cushion shoe, um, you know, 150 to, to 200. But uh, part of the reason for the increase of cost is I think it has started costing more to produce them. 
Um, a lot of uh, the factories over in Asia that produced them are starting to uh, improve work conditions. Costs are going up there, workers' wages, which um, good for them. Uh, and somewhere those costs are going to get transmitted to the consumer. So we're seeing those increases in price. And there's other other factors too. You know, gas prices go up, so the cost of transporting uh, the product, whether uh, stuff's being flown in or shipped across, is getting more expensive. So we're seeing that trickle. Um, you know, every year, every couple of years, every three years, you're seeing your same model go up a little bit. So I've got a two-part question. Um, okay. First, as the technology is changing, are you seeing longevity of the shoe as you're wearing it increasing? Um, so like miles per pair of shoes. And then the second half is, what do you see as a average lifespan for a shoe in terms of mileage? Uh I'll give as general of an answer as I can because there's a lot of factors in there. For the first part, um, I would say the average lifespan has not really increased. I mean, I can look at some models and say, yeah, the outsole is more durable. You're going to get more miles. Um, But there's a trade-off. We talked about minimalist movement, and part of that offshoot is lighter shoes. If you're going to have lighter shoes which might cost more to manufacture, you're going to have less durability. That weight is taken off from somewhere. It might be a lighter upper. You're going to get upper, uh, an upper wearing out, blowing out, wearing off. Um, I see that. You're going to get a midsole that might be a lighter foam material. It's, it might compress quicker. You might have an outsole made out of a lighter material. It might wear through quicker. The durability might not be as much. So as you, as you say, I want a lighter shoe, and consumers are asking for lighter shoes. Shoes are getting lighter and lighter with every model for the most part. You're getting a shoe that might be less durable unless the company comes up with a new material that's going to be lighter and more durable. And that's kind of the magic thing they're looking for, but doesn't always happen. So I would say as, as the shoes maybe are getting more expensive or staying the same or changing, the durability is not necessarily going up. But some models, they are. Now, the second part... Uh, how long is a running shoe good for? It depends. You know, it's what shoe are you looking at? Are you looking at a lightweight racer? Are you looking at a heavy racer or a heavier shoe? Are you a lighter person, a heavier person? Are you running on roads? Or are you running on trails? Rule of thumb, I like to say just in general, is 300 to 500 miles. And then everybody's going to act differently in that shoe. I've had people wear a shoe for 100 miles. You look at it and I couldn't do that in 500 miles, but they've done in 100. It's their stride, and it's the way their body mechanics interact with the shoe and the road. And uh, they just wear through it. And usually if they're not happy with the performance of that shoe, and I can determine that shoe is not truly defective to wear out that quick, I just tell them, that shoe may not be the right shoe for you. There are other shoes that you may interact better with that may provide more durability and a longer life. But to go back to your original question, 300 to 500 is just that generic, basic guideline, and then uh, you just got to go from there. So maybe the more appropriate question would be, how do I know when it's time to transition to a new pair of shoes? (laughs) You know it's time when your knee starts hurting. The trick is is figuring that point out and then stopping 10 miles earlier. Um, You know, you can look for wear signs 
the upper, the midsole, the outsole, your wear pattern. You just get to know what that looks like on a worn pair of shoes. And you check your shoes periodically and you say, okay, um, this look indicates that I need to change shoes because I can tell based on my stride pattern, I have an excessive amount of wear maybe on the toe or the heel or whatever kind of stride I am, wherever that landing point is. Or, uh, you know, when the ripper, when the upper rips clean off, then it's time for a new pair. You just have to kind of know your tail on those shoes. Um, so mentioned earlier, I do have about 60 to 70 pairs of shoes that I, I run in. I keep track of mileage on each pair of shoes so I can go back and I can say, hey, you know what, for me, um, my favorite shoe is the A6DS trainer. I can get 450 to 500 miles on it. I know in that range, I'm getting rid of them before they bother me. Um, another shoe that's lighter, it lasts 300 miles. I have that kind of figured out. I keep track of my mileage. I get rid of it. So the best thing to do is to really know how your shoe interacts with your foot and what it feels like and yank it before it gets to that point. But it does take some experience. You mentioned surfaces. Do you have kind of rules of thumb, for example, if I'm running on a treadmill full-time versus a road? I mean, why would you do that? Well, yeah. It's a great question. Well, more appropriately, you may have a special pair of shoes. I'm not this person, Brian, right? But you may have, you may have a special pair of shoes designated for the treadmill mm-hmm. because you can't get the room dirty or the treadmill dirty with your outside shoes. Otherwise, your wife may yell at you. <laughs> so, I mean, I look at, you know, I'll run for, I'll put 500 miles on a pair of treadmill shoes so they haven't touched the outside and they look, they look like they just came out of the box. Yeah. You know, in, in that case, because you're not getting the abrasion on the outsole, it just might be the midsole has been crushed. And, you know, that's where rotating shoes can extend the life because that material in the midsole can actually rebound if you give it 24, 48 hours. Um, but at some point, that midsole, it's just, it's foam. It's going to crush down and you, you got to change it out. Like people will say, oh, it doesn't look like it's worn, but that midsole is not providing the same amount of cushioning for you. And at some point, you can say, hey, my body needs that cushioning. It's not there anymore in those shoes. I got to get rid of them. And again, visually, they may look fine. It's just knowing that shoe and how long you can last in it. Um, You know, there's people that put a thousand miles uh, on a pair of shoes and the shoe might be held together with almost duct tape and they're fine with it and and they don't have any injuries. They might be a little bit more biomechanically efficient. They may be a little stronger and maybe work for them, somebody else can put 200 miles on that same pair of shoes and they need to get done with it. Again, it really varies based off a lot of different factors. Eric, you just touched on this. So there is some truth then in rotating shoes, letting them rest? Yeah, uh, I can't point to any um, particular study, but just from my own experience, if you're wearing the same pair day in, day out, uh, I think they, they lose their life a little bit quicker. And if you give uh, some breathing time allows it to rebound a little bit. You're going to extend the life just a little. Um, not everybody can rotate through 60 pairs of shoes, but at least two or three, I think, is a good idea. Well, I was just I was just going to ask you about that. So how on earth do you select a pair of shoes for that run? Is it, is it what you're wearing? Is it the uh, day of the week? No. But how, it, it is. It's, am I doing am I doing a fast pace or a slower paced run? Am I going to run on roads and trails or just trails? How am I feeling? 
um, do I need a, a little more cushion shoe or am I feeling fast and I want a lighter shoe? Um, I'm very lucky that I have a selection like that. And I really, every time I put on a pair of shoes for a run, I, I can think, okay, how am I feeling? What's it like outside? Where am I running? What's the right shoe? Um, I have eh, maybe about 15 pairs under my desk here. Uh, the rest are sitting at home, but I'm able to rotate uh, and kind of pick that one pair of shoes that, uh, that, that's going to suit me for that day. But I would say just in general, having a minimum of two pairs of shoes is a great idea because you are able to switch it up. You know, without going into long explanation about training, if you give your body different stimulus, your body is going to have to adapt to a different stimulus. Adaption is good. If you have the same stimulus day in, day out, your body is doing the same thing. You start looking at repetitive motion injuries and, you know, that repetition can kind of day in, day out, putting in the miles, uh, start causing problems. But different shoe, not, not different colors of the same shoe, <laughs> but two different models that meet your needs as a runner is just a great idea to mix things up. So building on that, so for a runner that may be looking to experiment then, how would you suggest then rotating that new pair of sh- that new shoe in, for example, then? Uh, so if they're used to you know, their standard everyday shoe and they want to try something one day a week, move up to two days a week. You know, it's just that slow, slow introduction, just like anything new. You don't go in and uh, decide, I'm going to start lifting weights, and, and that's my routine, and work out five days a week doing your arms every day so that, you know, it's it's just that overload. So you want to just kind of work it in. And, again, it depends how much are you running. Somebody who's running 70 miles a week, you know, they might say, I'm going to run this in this new shoe 20 miles the first week where someone who's running 20 miles a week might do four miles in it. So it really varies on on the uh, – type of runner that's 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 great advice i think so many of us get really overzealous like we go get the shoes or the shoes come in the mail and we have to use them and then use them and use them some more so i think that's uh that's really good advice so can you walk through just uh, in general maybe if somebody doesn't have access to a good local running store or they might be purchasing them um and maybe a big box gosh forbid um but can you describe kind of the proper way like when you outfit somebody for shoes how you go about that uh you know the first thing is is uh what is your running history um how many miles a week do you run what's your um what's your injury history what kind of surfaces are you running on Uh, ask if I'm doing it, I'm going to ask a bunch of questions to get to know the runner that I'm um, helping. Um, then we're going to start picking out a few shoes based off of a gait analysis. So in our retail store, we have a treadmill, and we have you get on there and watch you run and see if you need a little bit of support, a lot of support, neutral shoe. So we're able to then, based off of injury history, running habits, terrain, the gait analysis, we're able to come up with two or three shoes and then it comes it comes to try them on and see what feels good. And sometimes, you know, the shoe that I think you need isn't the shoe you need because you put on a shoe and the one that feels good and works is the one that you need. But we can narrow it down and give you a selection. Now, if you're trying to do that in um, a store by yourself, 
it's a it, it can be tough, especially if you're a new runner. And many times I see a new runner go in, hey, these shoes are seventy five dollars. I don't want to spend a lot of money. They get a pair of shoes because it looks like something they need without a lot of knowledge, and then they end up getting it injured or doesn't feel good, and they say, well, this running thing isn't isn't for me. You know, that's where you really need to go to a local store, or you can call us up and shop online, and you can. It's nice with the internet and the resources these days because you can search out that uh, that advice and and guidance that you need. So I know a bit of technology that you guys incorporate into your website is the shoe fitter. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about how that works? Uh, shoe fitter, yes. So um, it's really interesting because they started with us as far as as uh, developing their ideas. Um, the owners of Shoe Fitter contacted uh, owner running warehouse several years ago and said, hey, we have this idea. And they came to our store for a couple uh, weeks and scanned a lot of shoes and started working on a database of shoes. And they have their computer program and their algorithms. And uh, if you go to our site, you can kind of see what it is. It compares many, many, many different models across many different brands. And it'll tell you, hey, if I like the Pegasus 31 in a size 11, what's my Adidas Ultra Boost perfect size going to be? So their database with all their scannings, um, it's pretty massive, provides the information for the consumer who can't try on a bunch of shoes. They're able to go look at uh, different models and come up with the, um, the correct sizing um, because sizes, as, as hard as it is to believe, sizing is not consistent among models, brands, styles. It can get uh, kind of frustrating. Um, but shoe fitter um, is one of the the um, great things we try to do and have introduced to make the shopping experience a little closer to what you can get in the store by um, allowing you to kind of browse through and, and figure out your shoe online. It's great stuff. Um, we're getting towards the end. Don't worry, we won't we won't pepper you all night with our with our shoe questions here. I'm having fun. Don't worry. Oh, great! Glad to hear we are too. Um, the the one of the most common uh, problems. I hear from new runners are blisters. Um, and I, I want to talk about that for a second. Um, but before we get there, I wanted to ask about the relationship with socks. I mean, behind shoes for me, socks are the, like the number two thing that I'm kind of really careful about. Right. Cause mm-hmm. I've, I've found socks that work for me and I, I want to stick with that. Um, are socks typically one of those things that, um, the average runner doesn't pay enough attention to? I think so. I mean, without making too much of an overgeneralization, you buy the best pair of shoes for your foot, and then you put on a a cheap pair of socks that's going to bunch up and cause problems. What's the point of the shoe? I mean, you're going to have an experience that you're not looking for. Um, There's a lot of good socks out there. I bought socks for Running Warehouse for a couple of years and got a chance to really kind of delve into it and try a lot of socks, and I still try a lot of socks out. And uh, just like shoes, there's the right sock for the right person. You have a company like Injinji and the Toe Socks. Some people love them. Some people hate them. It works for the people it works for. A uh, sock like Right Sock with, that has a two-layer um, uh, construction where one layer and the other layer is supposed to kind of move independently and pr- provide a surface that doesn't cause blisters. Works great for some, not for others. 
Um, there's another brand that's actually pretty local here in California, just up the road from us, uh, Drymax. They have this hydrophobic, hydrophilic uh, dual layer that pulls moisture from your foot and, and takes it away. Blister prevention. Uh, you know, they have their own method. So there's a lot of different brands out there that have a different theory behind uh, blister prevention and appropriate coverage for your foot. And again, it's experimenting. Trying three or four different socks, find the one that works for you and and go with that. Um, my sock collection is more extensive than my shoe collection and and I enjoy trying a lot of different socks and different socks have different experiences just like the shoes. But vastly overlooked, but a uh, very, very important part of the uh, the shoe fitting process, it should be. And I think you hit on it. I mean, price, when you look, you look at socks, the prices can be a little bit eye-opening if it's the first time because, yeah, you're looking at this thinking, oh, this is for a pack of three. No, this no. is for a pair of socks. A $12 pair of socks? What are they doing? <laughs> but, you know, again, a good pair of socks should be durable, should last you a while, and, and should help. If you're going to get a blister, you, you're not going to have a good experience. So it's, it's just part of the process. Yeah, so you, you, you kind of touched on it with the socks then. So uh, if I'm a runner and I'm, ha- you know, I've, I've, tried, I've tried this and I've tried that and I'm still getting blisters, like how, how should they approach it? So <laughs> blisters can be caused by, you know, poor choice of, so- choice of socks, uh, ill-fitting shoe. Um, boy, it, it, could be a, it could be your foot's problem, you know, um, a hammer toe, a, your second digit longer than your your big toe, uh, you know, a lot of different problems. So it depends on what is causing the blister. Um, some people, my wife, <laughs> unfortunately is just going to blister when she runs. She's tried a lot of different things and it's gotten to the point where she's, that's, she's accepted it. She's kind of gotten over it and she knows she's going to lose the toenails during her, uh, her races. Um, you know, for some people, they're just going to blister no matter what they try. And uh, it's unfortunate, but their feet just aren't built maybe to take that pounding, the skin, for whatever reason. Um, some people put lube on their feet and Vaseline and stuff to prevent the friction. And, and you know, that might work. But, you know, when you say if they get blisters, there's a lot of different reasons, but a lot of different reasons and a lot of different solutions. It's really just kind of analyzing that particular person. I don't blister, so I'm lucky. <laughs> That's terrific. So you mentioned uh, blistering with ultra distances, but if you're looking at the typical runner that might be running 15, 20 miles a week and maybe doing a 5K or 10K, is is there a reason why that runner should be getting blisters and or problems with toenails? It- it could be as simple as ill-fitting shoes, you know, something that's too small, something that's a tight toe box. It could be a sock that's not fitting properly and causing. I mean, there's a lot of different reasons. Um, so it's hard to it's hard to point to one thing, but that's where a good conversation with that person needs to take place. Gotcha. So so you, it, at those distances and those types of events, you shouldn't just be accepting that's how it is. Most likely, yeah. there there is something going on there. For most people, that could be fixed. Yeah, you can find a solution, and you know it might be the sock, it might be the shoe. It well, those are the two main things. Um, or it might be, uh, you know, it could be something with your foot that needs to be looked at. But uh, usually, it can be fixed, but not in every case. 
but it's, it's experimenting. It's just like, you know, like I said, not every shoe is going to work for somebody. Not every sock is going to work for some people. Not every sock, the way it interacts with the shoe is going to work for some people. It's just, it's mixing it up and, and trying different things. And, and really it's having that one-on-one, one-on-one discussion with somebody that knows the sport and can offer solutions for your particular problem. And that's where, you know, a local running store uh, is, is big, making a relationship with them. Uh, writing into a, a company that's online that has knowledgeable people that can help you. It's really that one-on-one uh, experience to kind of delve into what's the cause and what's the solution. Most of the time, there's a solution. So a quick question. What If you could give any one bit of advice to our listeners about picking their shoes, what would that one bit be? Get properly fitted at a store that's knowledgeable whether it's online at your local store um, or maybe you don't have access to either of those things and you have a friend that's a runner and can take you into a store that just sells shoes where maybe you're not going to get the personal help but your friend's going to help you. But it's talking to somebody knowledgeable to get the information you need to be successful because you, know, you see it all the time. The new runner gets a bad pair of shoes, goes out, runs as hard as they can, gets hurt, doesn't have a good experience and wonders why the rest of those crazy people are doing it. And usually there's something that you can do to kind of help them uh, get into a better situation so they enjoy it. But it's talk to somebody knowledgeable. Listen to you guys. Um, so the most important question of the podcast, given the crazy looking running shoe trends, just the bright colors and everything, of your 60 pairs of shoes, what is your favorite looking shoe? Wow. Um, You know, so many times I don't go for look. I go for function. (laughs) The look is a byproduct. So if it happens to be a uh, shoe that I want to try out and can try out, whatever it looks like, it looks like. Um, Boy. You know, just just from pure aesthetics, I think uh, the Hoka's are pretty crazy looking. Um, I'm looking under my desk to see if I have anything here. These are pretty tame by my standards. Um, I don't think I have one that's really that crazy looking, but then again, my standards might be a little bit warped compared to some others. Yeah, I think you've probably seen it all, right? So at that point, everything looks looks normal. Yeah, you know, I look at something like, uh, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Asics Nusa shoes that have the bright pa- Very much uh, you know, a trendy shoe and stuff. Those are kind of crazy. I'd wear them if I had them, but I don't have any of those. Um you know, I can point to some crazy-looking shoes, but they might not be in my collection. And actually, as we wrap up here, I had one one question on that one. So um, I'm a big Mizuno fan, and I notice you can get shoes overseas. Uh, they might look very similar to a U.S. model, um, but either you know some slight difference either in aesthetics or um, in the actual construction. Why is that? Is there that much difference? In, in U.S. taste and, you know, Japan or Europe's taste and, and how our foot, foot works. Yeah, so uh, different markets have different consumers and uh, different tastes. So in the U.S. market, the people who are bringing in the product and they have a range. They make a selection that's going to satisfy the consumers in the U.S. And in some cases, um, a shoe that's in the Asian market or another market may not actually work for the U.S. market because there are differences in foot shapes. 
So different last shoes, um, and especially I think some racing flats that you'll find in Japan um, aren't in the U.S. because of uh, uh, fit problems that you'd experience in the U.S. Um, but one of the things that we've done is we've opened up a st- uh, headquarters in Europe, based in Germany, and we're having access to um, different styles of shoes um, that are global but maybe not in the U.S. market. We're looking to bring some of those into the U.S. market so the consumer can check them out and, and decide on the, their own if they uh, they like it or not. So we're hoping in the next uh, three, four months to have several styles that uh, you're not going to find anywhere else that are over in the uh, Asian market and now in the U.S. That's great stuff. We'll be on the lookout for that. See, Brian, and you thought I randomly picked Germany for my next trip, didn't you? <laughs> well played, Joe. Well played. It all makes sense. Well, Eric, we really can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us. This has been awesome. My pleasure. I, I, uh, I enjoy this, too. It's my first uh, uh, attempt at this, and it was, uh, it was fun. All right. Well, we'll keep you on speed dial and, and bring you back because you've got a terrific wealth of knowledge about shoes, socks, and uh, a ton of other things. So. Awesome. Love talking about the sport. So anytime, uh, hit me up and we'll we'll uh, have another call. Appreciate that. Well, that does it for another episode. Follow us on Twitter. Brian is at Run Goose Run, and I'm at McRunner26. Until next time, keep running. Want more info on the podcast? Head over to MilesNotIncluded.com. Are you on Twitter? We are too. Find us at MNI Podcast. Any questions, comments, or even like to be a guest on the show, hit us up at podcast at milesnotincluded.com. Music